Well, Hot Tim Winter is over. It's NSCC. That is, it is now spring at Club and Country. Eh, we'll find a better acronym. But the highlight you just heard, courtesy of John Strong and Fox Soccer, was the last kick of MLS play for Nashville's first opponent in 2021. It's Seattle. They're angry. They're good. We are arguably neither of those things. This is Club and Country, the podcast of record for Nashville SC coverage from two people who've covered the club longer than anyone in their respective disciplines. I'm Nashville SC radio voice, Wes Bowling. And I am Tim Sullivan, the owner of ClubCountryUSA.com. And Wes, you got to give us a little bit more credit. I'm sure we can find something to be either angry about or good at, right? Maybe. And, if, and <laughs> bonus points for both, which would be kind of yeah, like Anibal Godoy going into a tackle in midfield, right? He's angry yeah. and the anger feeds him. It makes him good. Uh, one thing that makes us happy is Moon Taxi. Thanks to Moon Taxi for the music. Always local around here. Great local band. Check them out. For the first time in 121 days, Tim, it is match week for the boys in gold. And leading off the season, one of the toughest matches the team will face off season, all season potentially, and certainly the toughest stretch it'll face all year. Yeah, eight road games to start the year is, is no simple task. And, and it's funny, the only one that's less than a full day's drive or, or much, much longer than that <laughs> is the only non-conference match of the trip to Columbus in there. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how Nashville SC can adapt to life in the West and it doesn't get off to an easy start with, uh, I guess, the second longest trip that is possible for them to take this year, heading up to Seattle to open the season. If you've been living at a trailer at the fairgrounds and hadn't heard Nashville opening the year as with I, eight road games. Been, yes. Because, yes, exactly. <laughs> I drove by the other day, by the way. The site just didn't, like, trespass. It just drove around the outside. Uh, it's really coming together well. It looks good. Uh, but your, because... your, boy's a big, your boy's a big Bransford Traverser, just to get the latest a glimpse from the road a little bit here. You know, Bransford and Wedgwood, and it all it all connects pretty well. I stopped by, <laughs> got some brunch on the way home to justify the trip a little bit. You know, <laughs> add a couple pounds. And if, if you've been living in that trailer, to digress, we digress just a little bit. You, you may not have known Nashville's in the Western Conference now, at least for a year, maybe exclusively for a year. And because the stadium is not going to be done until May 1st, they start with eight road games, seven of them to Western Conference foes. It's going to be a tough stretch. And we'll get it started by analyzing that first match Sunday at 7 p.m. with everything you need to know about the Seattle Sounders. Plus, we'll recap recent preseason action. What does Anibal Godoy have to say? And Gary Smith analyzes the team's early performance in that three-man backline shape that it used for the majority of last year. It has employed that shape. We haven't seen preseason action, but it's been described to us that that's what they've gone with. The lineups would indicate that as well. What does Gary Smith think about how his team has responded to that. And then an in-depth interview with Jeremiah O'Shan. He is all things Seattle Sounders. He's covered the club since 2010. He's a big shot at SB Nation with uh, some tremendous thoughts about what Seattle needs to do to get the three points against Nashville, despite the fact that the Sounders are going to be dealing with CONCACAF Champions League action this Thursday and trying to integrate a couple of pieces back into their roster that were Awesome cornerstones in previous years, but missed most of last year. This is a Seattle team with a lot of praise, but also a lot of question marks. And he explores those. Then the mailbag. What should we expect from NSC's opening stretch of games? We'll go outside in then and look at CONCACAF Champions League. What's happening in CCL? And then the final whistle with a very special recommendation. But we're going to go ahead first and make that recommendation now. Before we get into this show, Tim, an exciting opportunity for free soccer, fun times, and most importantly, free beer with your fellow gold-clad supporters <laughs> to watch the first match. The free beer is what it's all about. Here's what's up. 
440 Sports Network is hosting a viewing party at ML Rose on 8th Avenue. That's in South Nashville. That's the good news. It's really good news. But the great news, Tim, the first 50 people get a free beer and they get it at a great burger joint. Yeah, free beer, soccer, good people, Braden Gall. Those last two things are different from each other. But, uh, <laughs> what, what more could you ask for? It's, it's everything that a, a Nashville soccer fan could want while the team is out of town. Kickoff 7 p.m. Sunday night. I'll be on the radio call. Tim's going to be out of town. But Braden's going to be there and maybe other self-styled celebrities. You'd never know. <laughs> Uh, get there early for the watch party because, again, the first 50 folks get a free beer courtesy of the great folks at ML Rose. Make sure, by the way, you go to the 8th Avenue location. Enjoy the best craft beer list in town along with a juicy burger. It's going to be a great opportunity for you to to get to know ML Rose if you don't already. And, and you know, it's not far from the stadium, so really good pre- and post-game spots. You can practice. Get those reps in in the, <laughs> in the eight road matches so that you're ready to go because it's only – what, five minutes or so from the new stadium? Not far at all from... Yeah, a five-minute walk. Not even a five-minute drive. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, if you have some of that craft beer, make sure you walk. Uh, <laughs> all right, let's get on to the early shout. About a week and a half from your first game that actually counts. Um, what do you guys feel like you have to continue improving on so that you're ready for that uh, trip to Seattle? Yes, uh, we have. we know we have a tough schedule for us. Uh, the first eight game, I think, we play away. Uh, it's first. It's first time for me. I think in the league is really difficult also because we travel a lot. We travel long, you know. Uh, but we need to be ready for 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 this uh, challenge. You know, uh, uh, West Coast uh, is more difficult. They have more quality player there. They 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 like to play. All the team like to play. Uh, is if we want to. To take something is this uh, first eight game. We need to work in hard. We need to to try to work in like a team, like like we working before. The most successful club in Major League Soccer in the last half decade is set to welcome Nashville SC to the Western Conference, and that was Anibal Godoy talking about the eight-match road stretch with Tim, as you heard, that lies ahead before the boys in gold kiss their home turf for the first time on May 1st. So we'll preview that Seattle match in great detail today, but first, Tim, Nashville played a couple of preseason matches last week. Oh, man, sorry. You said when they kissed the turf for the first time. That was a beautiful turn of phrase. And I think there are going to be literal tears in the stands if somebody actually physically kisses the turf. But yes, Wes, as, as you mentioned, uh, Nashville did play two preseason matches last week. And as with the match against Charlotte that we talked about last week, which was a 3-1 win, the result doesn't really matter. That 3-1 win yeah. against Charlotte might have felt a little bit better than a, a draw against Philadelphia Union and a loss to FC Cincinnati in preseason action. But ultimately, none of those three results matter. What matters is getting game-like reps for players and, and specific combinations of players and tapering up to the season. Uh, because for both Phil- Cincy and Philly, I think their biggest priority was getting some live fire minutes for some academy prospects. And that kind of mm-hmm. tells you that we're at the stage of preseason where it's, it's about maybe things other than necessarily going out and trying to win a friendly match. Yeah, Cincinnati beat Nashville 3-2, uh, Philadelphia, as you mentioned, the 1-1 draw. Both those matches went 120 minutes. It's an opportunity to get more players in, more reps. Nobody played the full 120, of course. Guys trying to get into shape. Uh, Nashville only opened only Gary the sp- was worn out of the end. Gary, yeah, that's the thing, I guess, right? You, you, you have to, he has to sweat 120 minutes instead of the usual 90. Uh, but his voice sounded pretty good, as we'll hear in just a minute in the press conference. He's, he's already in midseason yelling mm-hmm. form, it, it appears, because the vocal cords held up. Uh, Nashville opened the scoring against Cincy in the first five minutes, thanks to Luke Hawkinson. Alex Mueel tallied later. He also assisted Hawkinson's goal. We don't know who scored against Philadelphia. The club 
basically went dark on that one. Didn't really promote that one. Philadelphia had some some very vague details. But after that first match against Cincy, Gary Smith analyzed what he liked and didn't like in the team's performance in that three-man back line and what that brings to this club. You know, a lot, a lot of it, uh, honestly, is is recognizing the moments at which the guys can get more pressure on the ball and the cohesive nature and their changes of pace. You know, we've got an intelligent group of players. They take good information on board. Um, but they're going to make mistakes. And only by making mistakes and highlighting that in some of the video that we have post-game in the debrief can we work out how, how we can correct those situations and, and how much more consistent we can be because there are certainly good things happening. Um, you know, we, we got some, some decent pressing moments within the shape that we had. But there does have to be a very decent relationship and understanding between the front three, the midfield two, and of course when the wing-backs come and join in. Um, so work to be done, no doubt. But, you know, this, this shape, unless you're going to um, play a more reckless style, if you like, and, and really commit players higher up the field, there's always an Achilles heel to every system. And, and it's recognising that, understanding it, and most importantly, managing the moments in the game. This club would love to establish an attacking identity right away. It did that last year when it actually had a lot of home matches front-loaded. When you have eight road matches, though, to start the season, that's not exactly the time to leave your defense without cover. Yeah, getting the balance right is something that Gary has, has consistently talked about back to the USL days. It's always been a challenge that he's been trying to solve. Uh, whatever he says publicly at this stage, the team is going to go into those first eight games focused on not losing. And I, I know that might not be the most encouraging thing for fans to hear, but um, the front three or front four, whichever formation they end up playing in, it's going to be given freedom to make magic happen. But the solidity at the back is going to be the priority when you have eight games on the road. Um, later in the year, once you, you get some home games under your belt, once you're going on maybe sh some shorter road trips, yes, the balance can be adjusted. And especially when this club knows where it stands after those first eight games and can say, okay, maybe we can take some risks and go for three or zero versus kind of trying to guarantee ourselves one point in the table. But for the time being, I think it's, it's the one point with a hope for three. That's probably what you're going to be looking at for the better part of those eight games. Especially when you head to start the season to a Seattle Sounders team that quite honestly had no business losing in the first round of the MLS cup playoffs last year. They did so to RSL despite not allowing a shot to Real Salt Lake. It went to penalty kicks RSL closed it out. David Ochoa with some heroics. Say, shout goal. out to the villain, David Ochoa. <laughs> he is a villain in a lot of places, certainly in Minnesota and now in Seattle as well, as he uh, reveled in that successful uh, shootout of 6-5. It's not like he had a lot of saves, but he had the one. He had the one that mattered the most. Uh, let's give you the basics on the Seattle team then, which they would tell you they underachieved, even though they finished second mm -hmm. in the West last year. That loss, obviously very disappointing for them. They've been to the playoffs every season since their founding in 2009. So checking my notes here, Tim, I believe that would make Seattle and Nashville <laughs> SC the only MLS clubs to have never missed the playoffs in their histories. That's right, isn't it? As, as, it is, as it is written in the stones, so shall it be. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and Nashville SC fans hoping that is prophecy and not just history. Uh, but Tim, they've really built a strong culture in the Pacific Northwest, and they've done it since day one. Yeah, Seattle is is one of those clubs that Nashville can and and should aspire to emulate. 
um, from culture to support to the, the qual- simple quality in the front office. Very little goes wrong with this club. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and it starts at the top and it works its way on down. When you make sure all the little details are taken care of, the big things often come together on their own. And Seattle makes sure that every little detail is, is covered. And as we've seen, that's led to a ton of success year over year. Their big guns are back this year, too. 16 of their 18 most used players last year returned this season. And according to American Soccer Analysis, only two teams returned more minutes from a year ago. One of them, by the way, is Nashville. That sort of ties into the above point, which is if you, if you do the right things, you don't really need to reinvent the wheel from year to year. Um, Seattle is doing it right, and they know they don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater in, in a year-to-year turnover in Nashville. Um, knock on wood has done that for the first couple of years and, and will hope to continue to do that. This is two teams who know what they're about and matching them up in the first week of the season should be pretty exciting. As I was prepping for this match, there was one stat that just didn't fit the narrative of what I understand Seattle to be. So I want you to explain it to me. Get rid of my feelings ball and give me some analysis here. Hmm. Seattle wasn't great at home last year. They had just the eighth best home record in the league. Now they were awesome on the road. They were the best road team in the West. But they were not that good at home, and they closed the season with the longest winless streak for the club since 2013, seven matches. Now, I can explain part of that before I let you explain, I guess, the the full story here. They didn't have their number 10 for much of the year. Nico Ladero played like 400 minutes. Wing Jordan Morris wasn't expected to play at all, came on late, but didn't significantly, significantly contribute. So two of their cornerstone pieces were out. Nonetheless, this is a club that is famous for overcoming issues like those what happened last year at home oh man i'm gonna give you such an unsatisfying answer which is As usual. a lot of it is just statistical randomness it's, ah. you know they started the year on a, a near i believe near league record or league record unbeaten streak some some of that's going to catch up to you unless you truly are this kind of galacticos type team and um they 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 weren't and that's not to say that you're guaranteed to be bad the second half of the year to, to make sure that you end up at the end of the season exactly where you belong. Um, the only team that is guaranteed to end up where they belong at the end of the season is Cincinnati. <laughs> but um, I, I think some of it was complacency from that early start. And if they had thought that Colorado was going to be able to hawk them down um, and finish first in the West, it might have gone slightly differently. But for the most part, it's just it's just the simple randomness. This is a game. It's a ball game and ball games all have a, a measure of randomness and soccer probably more than any because of the. Uh, you know, high variance of a game in which scoring is so low and scoring is so random. So it's obviously something that the Sounders are not happy about, but I don't think it's something that they really need to worry about being an issue going forward. You're right. That was incredibly unsatisfying. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's the cold hearted statistician in me. Hey, you know what? That's, that's, it's okay. I bring the, the country emotion. You bring the club, which beats me bring back the to rock reality. And roll. A little bit rock and roll. <laughs> Uh, so one person who wasn't maybe quite as optimistic about this club's performance as I think he should be is our next guest, Jeremiah O'Shea. Now, he was very realistic and and certainly would agree with our assessment that this is an MLS Cup contending Seattle team. But he's looking at Ladero's return and Morris's return and some of these other factors as not givens, but as X factors for whether this club can overcome what was, by most accounts, a disappointing 2021 for Sounders. Nobody knows this club better than Jeremiah Oshan, uh, outside maybe the front office of that club. And even then, he's pretty connected. Uh, let's get to our interview now with Jeremiah. Jeremiah Oshan is managing editor of SB Nation's Sounder at Heart website. He's also soccer league manager at SB Nation, which means he oversees all soccer sites on the platform, nearly 60 of them. 
He's busy. He's previously served as Sounders beat writer for MLSsoccer.com. He's covered the club since 2010. And Jeremiah, you are the first San Jose State Spartan that we've knowingly had on the show. I don't think we've <laughs> yes. had any others. Yes. <laughs> uh, welcome in. Thanks for joining us. It is awesome to think that we are discussing a season opener in MLS play. And it is possibly the toughest possible introduction Nashville SC could be getting to the Western Conference. Going to Lumen Field, taking on Seattle, long trip against a team that is a consensus pick to uh, contend for MLS Cup this year. We could talk all day, Jeremiah, about the great things about this team, about the acquisition of Albert Rusnak, the return of Ladero and Jordan Morris, Rui Diaz being a stone-cold killer, Joel Paolo having a career year in central midfield. Those are the dog bites man stories, if you will. Let's go man bites dog for a minute. Okay. If you had to pick a weak point on this team, is there one? Where is it, if so? Well, I think right now, right, like as we sit here today, I think the weak point might be at left back because, which is funny to say, because uh, knew who is the presumed starter there. And this is a guy who just came off of a Africa Cup of Nations performance in which he like legitimately shut down Mo Salah in the uh semifinals and so like he is a extremely good player but uh as we saw in the in the opener again in their champions league opener against uh, montagua uh they're down to their third string left back right now uh that was kellen Rowe had to play kind of an emergency left back he hadn't played there started there since hadn't started there since 2018 and so you know it's it's a, it remains a little bit to be seen what they're what they'll look like, at least as far as Nashville is concerned at that position. Um, and it's frankly, it's not even entirely clear what their formation is going to be for that game because they've trained mostly in a 4-2-3-1. I wouldn't be totally shocked if they came out in a, like a 3-4-2-1. Uh, but the team is just a little, is really unsettled. And so I, I think from a immediate, like looking down the road at Sunday, you know, this is probably a good time. If you're Nashville, it's as good of a time as you're probably going to have to play the Sounders because they haven't trained together extensively. They're going to be coming off of a of a must-win game on Thursday against Montagua. Uh, and they might have to juggle the lineup. So, I, I mean, I, I think that as far as Nashville is concerned, it's not a worst-case scenario for facing the Sounders. Like, if you're going to face the Sounders doing it this week – is probably the best time to do it. Seattle's been emphatic that it wants to avoid the embarrassment that it suffered at the hands of Olympia, I believe, right? A couple yes. of years ago in CCL. They've yeah. said, we're going to get past not just that first round, but we want to compete and, and be that first MLS team to get to Club World Cup. Do you think that, that they will prioritize that CCL home match Thursday and maybe see some rotation on Sunday? And if, if that is the case, who are some of the players, maybe the Kellen Rose of the world, but who else do you think needs to step up and contribute if this is maybe a... Uh, a, a slash B squad and not just an A squad for Seattle on Sunday. I do think that they will probably have to do some rotation for Sunday. My suspicion is that they will start as good of a lineup as they have available on Thursday. Now, there are caveats around that, and that is we don't know if Jao Paulo is going to be – like Jao Paulo didn't even travel with the team to Honduras uh, to gain fitness. He was very late to camp because – he was working out his green card situation. So he's only been training for about a week. And so they didn't want to use him against uh, Montagua and they sent him back to Seattle. He may or may not be ready to go for the season opener or the, the Montagua match. So he, if he doesn't play in Montagua, my assumption is he'll start against uh, Nashville, but he, he, if he plays against Montagua, he might not play at all against Nashville. 
so I, there's going to be rotation like that, and it will be hard to hard to to figure out. Uh, but if I were to if the Sounders were able to put out their ideal eleven for Montagua, uh, I would call their ideal eleven something like Nuhu on the left or Fry Nuhu Ariaga Jamar. Alex Roldan, Joe Paolo, Christian Roldan, um, Jordan Morris, Nico Ladero, Albert Rusnak, and Raul Ruiz Diaz. So if you take those year 11, who, who's going to have to sit against Nashville? My assumption is Nico Ladero would have to sit. Uh, my assumption is he's the one that, well, him and Joe Paolo, I would say, are the two most likely to be rotated. The rest of those guys theoretically could go on short rest, even at this point in the season, you know, Christian rolled on Jordan Moore is supposed to be pretty close to like closer to mid season fitness because they have, uh, they were with the national team. Mm -hmm. And so they went through that whole like rigged, rugged, whatever, what do you want to say? An intense training camp, right? New who is coming on is essentially in mid season fitness. He had been with Cameroon, uh, Jamar and Ariaga were both with their national teams. They should be reasonably close to full fitness. Alex Roldan was with his national team. There's a common theme you maybe notice here. A lot of these guys were, were spending their preseasons with national the national team. So I think the issue is not so much fitness for them. It's going to be rusty. It's just like familiarity, getting familiar with each other. They haven't played it all together up as of right now. They have not played it all together. Uh, and so yeah, uh, the long, the short answer, Ladero and and Joe Paolo are the two most likely to have to rotate, I think. You mentioned a lot of those international stars, and that includes U.S. internationals like Christian Roldan and Jordan Morris, like you mentioned. Are those top-end guys kind of the key to what has allowed Seattle to be so consistently successful over the years, or is it more about kind of maybe the guys who are complementing them um, being at a higher level than maybe the average MLS club rather than, you know, building it on the top end? So clearly high-end talent plays a huge part in this. I don't want to diminish, like, you got to have stars. You got to have talent. If you don't have that, everything else is somewhat secondary, right? But I do think what the Sounders have done a good job of doing is instilling a sense of belief in the entire roster that just because players are missing, it doesn't mean the expectations have changed. And so what we saw a lot, like last year was a great example of this, where, you know, Ladero missed essentially the whole year. Jordan Morris missed the whole year. Uh, you could go down the list and you had a lot of key players who missed big Stephen Fry missed half the season. Uh, you could go down the list, right. And mm-hmm. a bunch of players were missing. And even when those players were out, there was this, in, there was a, a real sense that it's like, well, we still got to win games. Like we can't like no one, no one cares if we, if we're missing all our stars, the expect we're still the Sounders. We're still expecting to compete. And, and you can, and there were a lot of valid reasons for why they ended up tripping up as early in the playoffs as they did. but. I don't think any of the players allowed themselves to believe like, well, it just wasn't our year because we couldn't get fit in time. I guess the the other big factor for, for a lot of Seattle success over the years has been being extremely difficult to play, especially at Lumen Field. Um, Nashville SC fans are, are, are familiar with playing in an NFL stadium, but I think the the experience that they're going to have in Seattle is probably pretty different. What is it like? Is it is it kind of a cavernous, oh gosh, we're playing in this big empty building sort of thing? Or is it, you know, as it was built with soccer in mind, unlike Nissan Stadium, is it a little bit more of an intimate atmosphere? You know, I'll tell you, I've been to, I don't know, hundreds, over a hundred games at, at Lumen Field. I would say of those 95% have had 30,000 or more in mm-hmm. the stands. Like, and these are like actual butts and seats. And if there is a full lower bowl, which is what 30,000 or so gets you, 
it you don't notice the you don't up notice the upper deck at all like you just it's out of sight out of mind it feels like an intimate atmosphere the way they have the roof designed keeps the sound in it's very loud now if it gets there are champions league games in the past where they don't they're not part of the season ticket package or whatever other games where <clears throat> there are you know like ten thousand people there and it starts to feel a little spotty but even then i would say it's the way the stadium is built it does keep the sound in and it never really feels cavernous uh like audio wise it mm-hmm. you know it can feel a little weird seeing all these empty seats but <laughs> it, i think it's it is a good soccer stadium i think it's a really good soccer stadium you know there's a there's been a hot debate this off season especially because there was this big announcement coming up uh last week where they ended up announcing the training facility and there was a lot of speculation like oh maybe they're going to announce the soccer specific stadium i don't think people that really knew what was going on thought that was going to happen but it did bring up this debate of like well, wouldn't it be better if the Sounders moved into a smaller soccer-specific stadium? And it's like, well, how much smaller do you want to go? And how much, how many fans are you willing to lose? How much, you know, like if they were moving it, like I think what Nashville's doing is great. Uh, it's a, what, 30,000, 25,000? 30. 30,000. I mean, it's going to be the biggest soccer-specific stadium in the country. Um, but that would be like the bare minimum of what I think you would need if you were to build that here. And they're never going to, like the amount of money it would take to do that would just be astronomical. So... Um, I, I think Lumen Field is a is a really great soccer stadium. I think it's going to be like my hope is that it's a World Cup stadium, and I think it will stand. I will. I think it will stand up very very comfortably against the other, you know, ten to fifteen other stadiums that get selected uh, in terms of its atmosphere for the World Cup. Nashville hoping to be on that list as well. Maybe we can be World Cup brothers in uh, in just a couple of few years here. Uh, there are plenty of reasons why Seattle should contend for MLS Cup this year. We've listed a couple of them. It's a treasure trove of talent. It's a culture that that knows how to get there and players who've done it before. Other than injuries, what's the biggest thing that could get in their way of pulling that off? I mean, I think injuries are a big part of it. One way or the other, whether or not players actually miss the time. I, I mean, I think Nico Ladero's ability to get back to, like a lot of this is based on, looking at what this lineup looks like on paper and saying like, wow, if they can get this group together on the field, that's great. But I mean, Nico Ladero hasn't done it for, he hasn't looked himself uh, since, you know, uh, 2020. So there's gotta be big questions there. You know, we don't know what Jordan Morris is going to look like. We assume he's going to come back because he's come back from this injury before, mm-hmm. but we, we don't know it yet. He hasn't scored, you know, he's it's, it's a small sample size, but he hasn't scored a goal since, since he came back from his injury. Uh, so those are two big pieces that I think a lot of people are basing their projection of how the Sounders will do. And we don't really know what they're going to, how they're going to come back. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're hurt. They just might not return to the form, their 2020 form, essentially. Uh, similarly, Albert Rusnak has never, he's never played on a team like the Sounders uh, that's this talented. And so we don't know if, how he'll fit as more of a complimentary piece. Like if he just is, you know, kind of, uh, if he doesn't really do much, they're going to be in a similar boat to what they were last year, which was a very good team, but not quite an MLS Cup winner. Mm-hmm. Understand? Is a four-man backline ultimately the best way to accommodate that talent? If guys like Ladero and, and Morris, you know, have resurgence and and get back on the scene to allow for that four-man attacking group, you know, the the Ladero, Morris, Rusnak, and yeah, then supporting I- Rudias. I think it is uh, mainly because you can look at, I mean, it kind of depends on philosophically how you look at it, but 
with Brian Schmetzer, he's not going to use offensive wingback. So he's not going to put Jordan Morris as a wingback. He's not going to put uh, Albert Rusnak as a wingback. Like theoretically, you could shoehorn an even more talented team into a 3-4-3 or something, right? If you were willing to like play those wingbacks as like... That's what, that's what Christian Pulisic told us at least, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Like if you had a... Right, exactly. If this is Thomas Tuchel, maybe the Sounders could figure out a more a more a way to get more talent on the field uh, in a different formation. But assuming that Brian Schmetzer does not throw caution to the wind and he plays uh, the way that all Brian Schmetzer teams have done, which is very sound defensively first, uh, I think the four-back formation makes the most sense uh, because essentially you're swapping... It, otherwise you're swapping a, a, a defensive midfielder for a center back. I know, and I don't think that's probably gonna, that's not like, there's, like I said, unless you're, unless you're throwing one of these other guys as, mm-hmm. as your left wing back or something, it's not going to really work. Well, aside from Sunday's game, let's look a little bit bigger picture. This will be the first time that the clubs have met on the field, but um, Garth Lagerway and Mike Jacobs have become very familiar over the past couple of years. Um, Jimmy Madronda for Handwala Buana, um, Nashville SC bought Nick Hines from the Sounders. They these te- these two teams have kind of worked together on the transfer and trade market a little bit. Um, but I, th- I would say all these trades have basically worked out for the Sounders, and that seems to be a theme. Um, they they keep getting away with it. Brad Smith to, to DC United this year. What is it that has allowed Garth to be so successful and and you know finding and and trading away for profit a lot of this talent? I mean, all I think the Sounders would be the first to admit that. Like the Madranda trade, which uh, if it was just Hondwala Buana for Jimmy Madranda, I think you'd go, oh, well, you know, it, yeah. it goes. That way. But there was also $275,000 in allocation money that came yeah. to the Sounders that really sort of like sways that into an extreme. Like it's hard to like look at that in a way that it wasn't really beneficial to the Sounders. Right. That said, I think the Jimmy Madranda piece of that makes it look much more lopsided than it really was. And Madranda was was like a I, I best I can tell he was really a throw-in piece like there was mm-hmm. nothing it wasn't like the Sounders had the secret insight into Jimmy yeah. Madranda uh that he could get that he would get healthy and frankly he's hurt right now uh he's had a hard time staying healthy we've seen him when he's healthy I think he's the player that Nashville thought they were picking in the in the expansion draft frankly but mm-hmm. he he has a really hard time staying healthy so I think I get I, I bring this up because I think some of it is is a little bit of luck uh you know the nick hines thing you know it's you're you're playing uh craps with with yeah. with talent right like he, yeah. he's a talented player who i he's not with nashville anymore right no. No, yeah i mean he, uh, he in usl yeah so he i mean he was a talented player I, I i liked i liked him as a player but he was i think nashville knew what they were getting which was a talented player who hadn't quite put it together and mm-hmm. and that's sometimes what happens uh but i i do think that one of the things that Garth does well is that he doesn't let personal feelings about a player or about an, an opposing team get in the way of him making what he thinks is a good deal. Uh, he, he welcomes players back, even if they've bad mouthed them on the way out. Uh, he understands that players get emotional when they leave and the Sounders have done probably more bringing a uh, bringing players back for second and third stints than probably any team in MLS history. Uh, and so he just doesn't, I think he doesn't hold a grudge. He doesn't take mm-hmm. any of this stuff personally. And I think that allows him to work from a very practical perspective. 
Like you look at the Brad Smith thing and from a Sounders perspective, it's a great trade because this was, you know, Brad Smith was, was essentially uh, excess talent. Mm-hmm. Like he, they didn't really have a place for him on the roster, especially at his salary. But I, there's every reason to think that he could be very productive for DC. And from DC's perspective, they needed a starting left back. Uh, Brad Smith has been productive in this league. Uh, and so I, I think, I think he's, he's someone that kind of looks at, you know, the more he, like, I'm sure in his mind, he's hoping Brad Smith works out because it, it, it makes the next trade easier to make. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I just think he, I, I think that's a big thing is that he just doesn't let personal feelings get in the way of making good trades. And I imagine Mike Jacobs seems to be yeah, yeah. similar. Uh, I was going to say Nashville fans probably feel much better hearing that as they think about how sad they are to see Alistair Johnson leave to to Montreal. So uh, not worrying about how much you love a guy when you feel the need to trade him is perfect. Yeah. Yeah, And I think he's also built up a lot of goodwill over the years that, you know, they they've made a big point of not standing in players ways of development. So like, Mm -hmm. for instance, this off season, they, they traded uh, Chris Haygart's rights to uh, Charlotte FC and not because they didn't think that Chris Hagart couldn't be an MLS player, but because they didn't see a pathway to him getting first team minutes and Charlotte was able to offer that. And, and, you know, we saw they, they traded this guy, Ray, or they let this guy Ray Serrano go on loan to, mm-hmm. um, to Louisville. And even though he's a, he's a, a promising prospect, like he was in the last year of his contract, they didn't want to, they didn't feel like they could block him. Uh, they have this kid, Alex Villanueva, who's on trial with LAFC, similar kind of thing where it's like, these are talented players who like, ideally I think they'd like to have on their roster, but they just don't want to, they want to sort of like be reasonable uh, in terms of like not hoarding talent. And yeah. uh, you know, cause I think that ends up hurting their reputation with players down the road. Yeah. When it, I mean, when it comes to not hoarding talent, um, Buana and Hines are both examples of that and that Seattle has such a strong Academy and Nashville needed homegrown players. They don't have any of their own. So they needed to acquire them to get those spots 29 and 30 on the roster. But from that regard, because of the success of the Seattle Academy, they've been able to make some of those trades, but what has led to the success of the Academy? I don't think most people look at, at the city of Seattle and say, Oh, there's a soccer hotbed. What has allowed them to, to either find, recognize, develop guys like Deandre Yedlin, um, Jordan Morris, Henry Wingo, what has allowed the Seattle Academy to, to have so much success over the years? I mean, I do think that it's a more talent-rich area for soccer mm-hmm. than it probably punches above its weight in terms yeah. of uh, its ability to produce soccer talent, in part because soccer is has a long history of being sort of a viable sport in, in the area. So it's not like the Sounders showed up on the scene in 2009 and they had to start from scratch in terms of like convincing young people to play soccer. Right. Like there was a pretty rich history of high level soccer here that goes all the way back to the NASL days. And and you can kind of quibble about like how much of that is really a continuous organization, but what you can't quibble with is the roots of soccer's uh, success being planted back in the 1970s. And a lot of those players sticking around and start, like you look at around the, the academies and the clubs that are here and the number of players who have played for the Sounders, uh, either in the NASL or USL days, or even now in the MLS days uh, that are involved in those clubs, like either as directors or coaches is astronomical. And so I just think that the, the, the talent uh, here is a little bit is, it's starting from a good spot 
Uh, and then the other thing is the Sounders have just invested a lot of money, uh, frankly, in into the academy. It was when Garth came here in 2015. That was one of his big focuses is that the, the academy predated him. It, I think, officially began in 2010. And they had produced, you know, they had produced DeAndre Yedlin at that point, And they had produced and I put I would say produced with quotes around it. Uh, they were they had those players come through their academy at some point. But like. And a lot of, and I, and I will say, I, I give credit to like Sean and Chris Henderson, who actually did work with DeAndre at a young age, but like the Sounders Academy did not produce DeAndre Yedlin. They had him for a year and then he went to college. Uh, and so they got a little lucky in that way. But I guess that it's sort of, my, my point is that in 2015, when Garth came on, he really started to modernize the Academy and he, he built up a proper system. They started really investing money in it. They have tutors, they have multiple coaches, they have uh they have real training systems around the academy and so they've just sort of professionalized it in a way that uh is still not standard in mls so this will be many nashville sc fans first trip to seattle get to know the city a little bit as well as the club most important question as we close what is one restaurant that nashville sc supporters cannot miss (laughs) when they travel up to seattle (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to give you an easy one because okay. it's near the stadium and it is spectacular. And you put me on the spot. I was not prepared for this. But <laughs> uh, Tat's, Tat's Deli, T-A-T apostrophe S, okay. is a sandwich shop that is sort of like a, I guess you would call it like an East Coast style sandwich shop. Uh, they do like Philly cheesesteaks and all sorts of other sandwiches along those lines. Uh, but it's pretty much around the corner from Lumen Field. It is amazing. They're amazing sandwiches, really good pregame meal. Uh, there is a lot of, you know, it's not the, the area around Lewinfield is not as vibrant as it was pre pandemic as you, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is definitely some areas that outside of uh, the game, you probably don't want to be hanging out too much in uh, that said, there are still a lot of really good restaurants down there. Uh, there's, there's like, you can't like the stuff that's still open down there you can sort of be assured is pretty good because if it was just like a tourist trap type situation, it probably disappeared during the pandemic. Uh, so that's like a broad piece of advice. I would say that if you're here for a few days, uh, try to get into some of the neighborhoods uh, like Capitol Hill is uh, I, like a, a food lover's dream. There are so many, there's so much variety of food and drink in Capitol Hill. Uh, if you're, you know, so if you're staying downtown, it's not too hard to get, you just got to kind of walk up the hill uh, to get there or take a bus or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I would say like, get around and explore, you get on the light rail, go to U district. That's where the, uh, university of Washington and another area, beautiful yeah, area. another area with lots of good restaurants and, and bars and, and all that kind of stuff. There's, uh, no shortage of things to do. You know, we're now pretty much most places are now open again. Uh, we still have some pandemic uh, like masking rules that you might have to be aware of. I would, if you come here, uh, be prepared to like show proof of vaccination to, if you want to sit down inside of a restaurant, those kinds of things. Uh, but otherwise it's, 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 we're getting closer to normal. Uh, whatever that means these days. <laughs> well, well, thanks for getting us closer to uh, what will be not a normal season for Nashville SC going to the Western conference, taking some long trips. And it starts with the, one of the longest possible up to Seattle. Thanks for getting us ready for kickoff and uh, look forward to uh, following your coverage. Yep. My pleasure. What did Jeremiah have to say that really jumped out to you most? 
I think one of the most interesting things that he mentioned was Nashville SC's first couple seasons essentially being as good as as any you know two year Seattle run minus a lack of silverware. Um, and, and part of what he mentioned was something that didn't apply to Nashville SC because there hasn't been a U.S. Open Cup for the past <laughs> two years, so yeah. Nashville couldn't get that particular trophy, which is part of what the Sounders did in their first couple of years. But that's something that again it kind of harkens back to what we talked about earlier that. Seattle is the type of club that Nashville can aspire to be and seeing that kind of they're hitting the benchmarks early in their franchise is something that I thought was extraordinarily important and pretty interesting because I think even Nashville fans who are happy with how things have gone don't really realize necessarily how happy they should be. <laughs> yeah, I think that's completely reasonable. Um, and, and especially from a club, as you've mentioned, that, that NSC is trying to emulate and, and another factor that you know you mentioned i think in the even discussion in the discussion that mike jacobs has emulated mm-hmm. is that you know it's it's not personal it's business <laughs> mentality yeah. of of you know moving on guys it's not maybe, called show friends right exactly exactly there you go there's no business like it and you know sometimes that means moving a guy before you maybe would like to Sometimes it means doing right by a player and moving him, even though you'd like to keep him around, like mm-hmm. and Wallabuana. Although some of that, you know, he, he's not contributed in Nashville. Nick Hines hasn't contributed in Nashville and, and won't. So there's good business in there too. Even um, one thing that Jeremiah exposed to me, I think, was maybe the the degree of the question marks that are being echoed up in the Pacific Northwest. I didn't necessarily understand. I look at this Seattle team and I think it's a top four team. Count it. And if they get the mm-hmm. breaks, as any top team needs to do, they're a top two team. And I don't think anybody else in this league, in the Western Conference, automatically pips them for that. I think I think they are the favorites. But he's talking about, you know, well, we can't, you know, nail down just yet what Morris and Ladero are going to be. Let's let's yeah. be careful about that, especially a guy who's been through two knee surgeries like Jordan Morris. Even though his dad's the surgeon, you just never know how a guy's <laughs> going to bounce back from that. Um, I think he in, inserted a little bit of, of Tim-style cold water reality, <laughs> whereas I've been researching this team now for weeks for this first match, and I have a pretty glowing opinion of them. So I thought that was that was an interesting contrast between my expectations and, and a bit of his reality. Yeah, the the one other thing that I cannot believe that we didn't ask him about is YachtCon, their annual uh, festival on their podcast that, that Brian Schmetzer shows up to every year. That's awesome. Um, and I, I dropped in on it the past couple of years, and Jeremiah dons an ascot, and Brian Schmetzer gets a funny background and holds a glass of wine and just sits there and drinks and talks to them for, the whole, for like two hours. It's awesome. Um, I cannot believe that it, we didn't think to ask him about that, but that's okay. There are three coaches that, that I'd most enjoy having a beer with in this league. Gary Smith, of course, being one of them. Uh, and then Jim Curtin and Brian Schmetzer, the other two. Yeah. Both well, hometown is, guys. He's going to make you give him a glass of wine, man. Well, it, well, <laughs> it's it's not I guess if you're in the P&W, it's a, it's a Pinot Noir situation, right? You got to, <laughs> you know, uh, maybe even some Willamette Valley if they want to cheat and have the pride of Oregon. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, two two hometown guys in Schmetzer and Curtin, right, who, who grew up close to the club. Schmetzer played for Sounders back in, the, in 1980. He was playing for that club in ASL days. Uh, you will not find a guy who, who bleeds his colors more than Schmetzer, perhaps, mm-hmm. perhaps Jim Curtin again, but, but nobody, nobody more so than that. We'll send you to the mailbag. Now some tremendous questions blowing up our, our Twitter feeds. John Mueller now entering year three. It seems to me that Nashville's no longer a mere expansion team. They've cemented their status in the upper echelon of teams in this league. Agree, Tim? First with that? Yes. I think, yes, absolutely. Same. What impact, then, John asks, will the weight of that expectation have and what players and coaches will be most beneficial? I think the weight of the expectations actually mostly affected last year's team because internally the expectations were very high. And 
Um, quite honestly, they don't care what the external expectations are at this point because they're already at the high level <laughs> from the inside. So there's no there's no heightened expectation that they need to meet. Um, the national punditry catching up to that is is doesn't really affect them because they already have those high expectations. In terms of in terms of who's who's benefited or who benefits from it is, I don't know. I think it takes it takes the sort of um, that sort of expectation to build a team like Nashville and everybody has to, has to kind of buy into that. And, mm-hmm. and we've seen that over the first couple of years. So I, I don't think there's any specific individual or, uh, I guess you can look at the starting, the expected starting lineup and say, probably those guys, because they're the ones who have bought in <laughs> and, and are, yeah. are taking advantage of it. Yeah. I think if anything, it's the, it's the younger players on the team who benefit from the high expectations, because mm-hmm. as you've said, the internal expectation has been high from day one. This was not a club that went to the final eight of MLS in its first year and was happy to be there. They were devastated. They didn't make the final four or or play for Mm -hmm. MLS cup. And so I think a younger player benefits from that type of culture and expectation, um, which most of those guys aren't going to be in the starting 11, quite honestly, you know, it's, it's, it's guys that are maybe an Alistair Johnston was a good example that last year, maybe a Jack Mayer this year, you know, as he's trying to develop in in a place that's going to foster a lot of iron sharpens iron situations, you know, guys really uh, working hard to, to improve each other. Yeah. I mean, you said more concisely what I had kind of thought to say as well, which is that the expectation among pundits has changed and changed dramatically, but internally, not so much. And in in the league, too. Like, Brian Schmetzer's not sitting there saying, this is a Nashville team that's only going to ever sit with back. With his Pinot Noir. With this, well, he's <laughs> definitely sitting with the Pinot Noir, of course. We've established that. But, uh, you know, he he, uh, he understands. That both these coaches, after year one, understand what Nashville is, which is not just a defensive club, a team that can hit you on the attack or maybe in a road situation hit you on the counter. But I do want to illustrate the degree to which the pundit perception has changed. Mm-hmm. MLSsoccer.com released its, its picks, which... You know, they're, they're worth the paper they're written on. I was going to say they're worth the computer monitors they're displayed on, but I don't think they are. Um, <laughs> who, who can predict this league well? Of the eight-member MLS editorial team, everyone picked NSC to finish top four in the West. Seven picked the boys in gold top three. Six picked them top two. And one picked them to win the West in their first year in the conference. So when we talk about perception shifting – yeah, man. Externally, mm-hmm. damn, it really has. Mark Dancer asked what, what Nashville's record will be when the club comes home on May 1st, again, after those eight matches. And, and Garrick Ledford echoes that. What is the minimum points per match we should be rooting for in order to not call the excursion a disaster? What should this club shoot for? I'll go with a number that I think would be a really nice scenario. And that's it's not glamorous, but it's one point per match. And that's probably not going to be eight draws, despite what this club nah, uh, eight draws. Did last year. Maybe it is. <laughs> Are you on team eight draws? You gonna, is that your official <laughs> oh, prediction yeah, right oh, yeah. now? Okay. It's, it's like kind of the root for chaos option, but like <laughs> root for utter lack of chaos, which is somehow more chaotic. I don't... Yeah, no, it, it's instead of a chaotic neutral, it's a neutrally chaotic, Yeah, I guess. Uh, how many goals then in those eight draws would Nashville score? Don't tell me zero. Don't tell me it's going to be eight goals. 16. 16. 16. Ooh. Yeah, so a lot of FC Cincinnati. Four, 14, 14 against Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> 14, 14, 14 draw. 14 draw. Woo, Zardis is going off, man. He's definitely going to get a national team spot if that happens. Eight <laughs> goals against Gary Smith. I think, yeah, just go ahead and put him in the World Cup. Uh, anyway, I think one point per match for a total of eight. So you've got a couple wins, a couple draws in those eight matches, and you've got a foundation or one win in five draws to get closer to Tim's scenario. Um, just a little perspective there. Seven clubs in the West averaged one point per match on the road all of last year. Five of those teams made the playoffs. So if you do that, 
yeah, you're going to have to make up for it at home, but I think Nashville's home form will be strong enough once they get in that new stadium. They have six of their next eight contests at their home ground. You know it's going to be electric there into the summer of soccer. So I think you feel really pretty decent if you're two, four, and two. Eight points after those eight matches. Yeah, I think they should be aiming higher, though, right? I'd be above the playoff line once you get some home games. It's, it's fine, but Nashville went 1.23 points per game on the road last year, and this stretch should have a couple of the less difficult games. I think you look at what FC Dallas and San Jose Earthquakes did last year, and possibly Columbus unless they turn it around, which um, I, I think the expectation is generally that they will indeed turn it around. Mm-hmm. So, But there are going to be some of the easier games in the Western Conference. Some of the easier trips in the Western Conference are during this stretch. And so I think when even though it's a tough stretch in that it is eight straight on the road, they want to do better than just kind of saying, hey, this is kind of worst possible case that we can do and still think to make the playoffs. I think they're going to want to have a little bit of a buffer for when they come home and and everything does not go perfectly or when they get back on the road after being home for a while and kind of forget what it was like and forget those rhythms if things don't go well. Yeah, I guess I was more going with Garrick's question of the minimum points per match, you know, to feel to feel pretty decent. I think one yeah. point per match is that this club will aim higher. I, I still like to see it better. Okay. Yeah, high expectations. So give it all away for a little bit more. All right. <laughs> Hot Tim Winter. He's still coming in hot, even though it's, it's <laughs> not the, the winter offseason anymore. Uh, Matt Bryan, much has been made about the West being a tougher conference, but the East has won four of the last five MLS Cups. Good stat, Matt. And we did hear Anibal even earlier on the show say the West was tougher in his opinion. Man who played in San Jose for a while. Uh, Matt asks, does moving to the West make NSC's road to a cup easier or harder when the playoffs start, assuming they perform as they have and make the playoffs? I think it's a false premise to start. I, I know that there have been some pundits saying the West is tougher than the East, um, but I disagree. Uh, it's a point I've made on the pod multiple times in the past. The teams all played to a dead heat in the regular season. I think the West ended up with one more win than the East, but uh, the advanced stats liked the East a lot more, and the East won the Cup if there was any need of a tiebreaker. So moving to the West is difficult for Nashville specifically because of the travel and adjusting mm-hmm. to a bunch of teams that they're playing for the very first time. You know, All the teams in the West have to play Nashville for the first time. That's one team that they have to play for the first time. Nashville is playing basically everybody except for Dallas, Houston, um, Portland, uh, Austin for the first time. So there are going to be some difficulties in Nashville kind of acclimating completely to a new set of teams that they have to play. Um, the other difference that could make the West more difficult this year is that West teams seem to have spent more upgrading this offseason. Mm-hmm. I think that's I, I don't necessarily think that uh, the East it has done a bad job, but I think it's pretty un, un uh unquestioned that the West has spent more and spent more wisely probably for the most part. So I think the West could be more difficult this year, but either way, if, and when Nashville does get into the playoff field, I don't think the difficulty of the conference really changes. It's the difficulty of the individual teams that you play. The one potential bonus could be if they get home games by playing well enough in the regular season that teams are not used to making the travel all the way to Nashville. If you're hosting Seattle Sounders, there you that's go. going to be the longest trip that they have to make um, for the most part over the course of the year. That's something that um, obviously they will have done it once in the regular season, but it's going to be tougher for them than going to Vancouver or going to Portland or going to Salt Lake City. 
yeah, turnabout becomes fair play in, in that situation. I think many are, are building the false premise of the West being better on head-to-head results last year, which are entirely random when you're only playing. It was close, too. It's not like there was, it was, it was like literally a one-game difference. Well, it didn't start close, and so then it built yeah. it built that perception, and then the, mm-hmm. the East caught up a little bit. But you only had two games against other teams. They weren't weighted. It's not like you had best-on-best best or anything like yeah. that, so it's hard to judge. On the other side, you know, I, I think the East winning four last five MLS Cups, there's a degree of randomness there, too, when oh, you've yeah. got five. A large degree, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think that the Western superiority complex is either based on on something like head-to-head results last year, uh, which again ended up being close. I think it's really about branding, though. I think we think of Seattle as being larger than life because of the results, and that's fair. Give that to them. <laughs> but you think of LAFC and Galaxy as being big clubs, right? And that's not fair. <laughs> and they're not right now. I mean, they have the money to be, and you mentioned spending. They spent among the among the foremost teams, uh, but both stumbled last year. Galaxy had have missed the playoffs three of the last four years. But when you think of a trip to Carson, California, you think, oh man, playing one of the big guys. And so it it they feel like big clubs. More people watch those clubs perhaps than are watching Philadelphia and Toronto FC on a on a Sunday night. And so that branding rubs off on some of the teams they play as well. Portland's been really consistent. They've been good. Are they any scarier than NYCFC? Well, they weren't in MLS Cup. But, you know, I... I, Neither was particularly scary. It was a typical final. It was a typical final. Yep. Um, So, yeah, I I agree with you, Tim. I think there's a Western superiority complex that's a bit about branding and and cachet uh, because really only really only inter Miami has even striven to have the kind of big club mentality in the East. I guess Atlanta too. And inter Miami's fallen on its faces. So yeah. Yeah. The, the, if you say, Oh, they're the team that's most trying to be a Western <laughs> conference team. And then you look at their results, you're like, okay, maybe the Western conference isn't great. <laughs> that's true. Uh, T Connor asks for our lineup predictions for Sunday. How are the boys in gold going to line up Tim? any surprises? I do not think we are going to reinvent the wheel here. Assuming that they're sticking with the back five as they've repped in, in most of the friendlies, at least the ones that they've publicized lineups for, I think we'll see the guys that you would basically expect. Joe Willis in net. Uh, he has played every competitive. No, Willis? So far. no there's no reason. There's no reason to expect. What that are you talking change. about? Willis? Right. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dan Lovitz, Dave Romney, Walker Zimmerman, Jack Mayer. And I, it's got to be Eric Miller at right back at this mm-hmm. point. Um, from left to right across the back, um, central midfield, Anibal Godoy and Dax McCarty. I could easily see Sean Davis stepping in for either of those, probably Dax, but I think first game of the year, Dax is going to want to miss that one, even if he's going to have to rest his legs a little bit over the course of the year. And then up front, Leal, Sapong, Mugtar, um, left to right, or kind of in their somewhat nebulous front three. And um, that's the situation that Nashville rolled with as much as possible last year, and I think they'll continue to roll with it. My only question here, I agree with you on Miller, by the way, um, my only question is whether you even consider taking out a Leal and putting in a Davis and, and having him be your, your supplier of that front two of Sapong and Mukhtar. I don't think that's where they go, but this is a guy who played every minute last year and is, it came to Nashville because he believes he can play significant minutes this year. And he's pretty good at, at, at taking and turning the ball the other way. If you're playing a counterattacking game, you could say you want the speedy Leal teaming up with the other two, or you could say maybe you want a Davis who's standing up a little bit above a, you know, Godoy and, and McCarty in like a number eight type of role. I don't think it happens, but I don't know. I could see it. If there, if there were a, a significant offensive upgrade at right back as, as has been promised uh, vaguely or explicitly at times, <laughs> I could see that. But I think taking, 
an attacking player like Leal off the pitch to put on a guy like Davis, who does have passing prowess and all that, but he's not going to create the same way Leal does. Mm -hmm. When you have an otherwise fairly defensive lineup, you got to have all three creators in there, I think. And it doesn't necessarily need to be all three members of the MLS line, uh, Leal Sapong, but it does need to be three players that have the ability to go out and create a little bit, I think. I, I agree that's but, probably I, the way it's up. Because I've come down so strongly on it, you will definitely end up being right. <laughs> uh, and I, yeah, not not privy to anything now, but just wonder. I, I do think, obviously, if Nashville goes up 1-0, then you might immediately see Davis come in for the layout. <laughs> <Second laughs> Try to button things up. See, it happens in the fourth minute. Go ahead and switch him out. Go ahead and switch him out. Uh, finally, Sarah Doxical, a uh, loyal listener, asked for our kit rankings. Tim, do you have a favorite? I know we're, neither of us are huge kit people, but, you know, it's it's kit season. Do you have a, Do you have one that you liked? So I read Lily this book recently that is how to find a fox. Uh, baby fox is called a kit. And so that's what I thought we were going to be talking about when I, we worked on the rundown. So I'm no your favorite okay, fox. This is I just did, went way too far down that. You're like the uh, Danish fox, band Ilvis. Ilvis. What yeah. does the fox say? Yeah, the second best Ilvis song. Everybody check out their song. What is the meaning of Stonehenge? Oh, Massachusetts. Yeah, that's a good one, too. Uh, The Cincinnati kit, I actually really do like. You got to throw them a bone when they do something right because it is so rare. So shout out to SC Cincinnati. I I really like their orange kit. I'll be honest. That was my answer, too. I I mean, I'm always going to Then I'll change mine. The Atlanta United mint green kit looks awesome. It's pretty cool. (laughs) I like both of them. I like I'm not a I'm not a non kit guy in that I don't like kits. It's that I end up liking everything i think so there's not maybe the nycfc one i was kind of eh, on like that was that was a little much of a departure for me yeah but the lafc one kind of looks like a usl kit but they, they all look fine well they they played like a usl team defensively ooh, at times last ooh. year so yikes uh, atlanta was cool the only beef i had with it was that the unveiling video had the same color green as their backgrounds so you didn't really get to see the jersey stand out against like a neutral background to really see what it was going to look like once i saw so then, a picture so of it then they they had a guy come up and he was doing the weather and he was keyed out like in popular film groundhog <laughs> you Day. could just see his nose it was yep it was really <laughs> unfortunate uh yeah you gotta the green screen is green for a reason you gotta mix things up a little bit <laughs> We'll go quickly outside in, a quick catch-up of CONCACAF Champions League, or CCL. Uh, not great results for Major League Soccer. Uh, again, all they of them on the road, fine. and you got to qualify it, and you're about to. You go ahead and qualify it. You're well, wiping they were, your hand They out. were fine. It's And part of the bit, honestly, is that we're going to have our hearts broken in the end. So it's good. Yeah. it's good to get off to a rocky start. It kind of preps us a little bit. <laughs> Especially a rocky start for Cavalli out of Haiti, which was unable to get its visa issues sorted out, despite a lot of good faith effort, it sounds like, by yeah. everybody involved. Hate that for them. New England moves on to the next round, so they're through. NYCFC, the only team to win, though, in its first road match, 2-0 over Santos de Guapiles. Not a big surprise there. They looked in midseason form, though. Seattle scoreless against Motagua, as we discussed, down in Honduras. And Colorado, a 1-0 loss to Comunicaciones in stoppage time in Guatemala. Once the Guatemalans have to come to the altitude, to the cold, you think that probably turns around with not a whole lot of problem. And Montreal, I think the most disappointing defeat because they were so close to having that scoreless draw on the road in Mexico against Santos Laguna. They give up a, a deflected goal late. They lose 1-0. Still a chance at uh, Stade, Olympico, Stade Olympique. Sorry, I tried to go Spanish there for a minute. Um, <laughs> in Quebec. They, they, they'll have a home match. They... Just need two goals to advance or one to send it to penalties but or extra time. But, man, to, to come back from a scoreless draw and, and have to score just the one at home would have been really nice. 
Yeah, I think the things that jumped out to me is that that Montreal heart absolutely heartbreaking because they were bossing that game against Santos mm-hmm. Laguna too. Looks good. Um, the the Rapids result was bad, but as you mentioned, they should be able to do well at home. Although I think you need to to look at a topographical map of Guatemala West. It's, it's a lot of mountains down there. So, so, so those guys oh. will be used to playing at altitude. But oh, um, I, I think the MLS teams are in good position to move forward. Obviously, Montreal against a Liga MX team, you, you if you're only down one nothing through the first leg, you are feeling okay. Yeah. Uh, you weren't probably expecting or maybe even wanting in some circumstances to move through to the next round because you want to be able to focus <laughs> on the regular season. We've seen MLS teams do it before. Oh yeah. So, so I, I, I think when you look at this, this first round, this first half of the first round, I should say, uh, it does look like MLS is, is poised to, to have a pretty good advancement to the next and then, then, then it starts getting sad and heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah, I think you see, you expect to see four out of five teams advance. You already got the one. Montreal, it's always going to be a tough road against a, a Mexican squad, but Colorado should win. Sorry for messing up my Guatemalan topography. If, by the way, you two <laughs> I don't know, where, I don't know where Comunicaciones is. It, I hope it's right on the coast, so I sound like an idiot. I'll just pretend that that's what I knew all along and that I was right all along. But if you tuned in for Guatemalan and Guatemalan, wow. (laughs) It's when a Guatemalan marries somebody from the Dominican Republic, a Guatemalan. (laughs) If you tuned in for Guatemalan topography lessons, I'm sorry you had to wait an hour to get there, but we finally got to you. So thank you. Uh, I don't even know where I was going. So we'll, we'll, we'll leave this. They're in Guatemala city. They're a mile high. They're 4,900 feet. Okay, it'll be colder, though. It'll be colder in Colorado. We'll go with that. All right, mercifully, we're going to go to the final whistle now. Uh, Neither of us have actual content recommendations. We're each going to self-promote here. And I'll start. 440 Sports Football League. You've still got a few days to join. You can technically join after week one, but you're going to be behind Tim for at least two weeks if that happens before he stops (laughs) checking his team. Uh, We've got a a, a glut of entries. I think we're going on like 30-plus now. We've got a ton of folks. Tony Husband has signed up, by the way, uh, TV voice of Nashville SC. We're in there. Braden Gall, again, a self-styled celebrity. Uh, Join MLS Fantasy. I'll post the link on Twitter one more time sometime Tuesday. Just keep an eye out. It'll take you straight to the group. It's super easy and fun. No, uh, no prizes, just, feel, just pride. You get to feel smarter than us because Wes is bad at it, and I would finish first if I would ever remember to set my lineup for more than two weeks. I'm bad at it. I was like, I was <laughs> Champions <laughs> League place last year. Well, Europa, <laughs> like fifth or sixth. My content recommendation is something that we talked about at the very top of the show. Uh, the ML Rose Watch Party at 440 Sports uh, for the for the season opener. I cannot believe that the season opener is here. Unfortunately, the people at ML Rose can believe it, and they will have some free beer for a few of y'all. So make sure you go check it out. Yeah, top bins, top buns, and bottom buns with great burgers at ML Rose. Kick off at 7 p.m. Sunday night. Get there early. Braden's going to be there. And again, the first 50 folks get a free beer, courtesy of ML Rose, incredible burgers, huge craft beer list. Go have a great time. Send pictures after you join the 440 Sports Football League, of course, and then you can trash talk each other all night long about what happened over the weekend of play. Uh, It's been a fun episode. Thanks to Jeremiah Oshan for joining us. Thanks to Moon Taxi for the music at the beginning and the end of the show. Do us a favor. We say this every week, and then it's been a week a week or five since you guys have actually followed through on this. Hop on Apple Podcasts and give us a quick rating if you feel so kind to give us a review as well of the show. Tell us why you love us. If you hate us, you're not still listening. But if you do hate us, just you know, give us five stars out of pity, I guess. Uh, subscribe to the show. Tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter. And uh, Tim, 
can't wait to to keep interacting with this great community in year two of, of this podcast and year three of MLS Soccer in Nashville. It's going to be an awesome year. It's going to be a very uh, West Coast oriented year uh, for for us on the podcast, for the team. And hopefully some of the listeners will be able to make it out to some of those games. So we'll see uh, what happens. But thank you, everybody, for for following through on Wes's request to rate, review and subscribe. We've had hot Tim winter. So is this now West Coast? Ooh, ooh. There we okay, go. Okay. Nashville makes its first trip to the West Coast in Seattle. Trying it on for size. I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, you guys weigh in. We'll talk to you next week.